If you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. We're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to IMRU Radio Magazine. The nation's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show. Out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Wenzel Jones. And I'm Abby Dees. Tonight, our very own Miss Barbecue sits down with a classical pianist, television writer, singer-songwriter, and trans activist, Our Lady J. And Steve Pride talks with pioneering film director Wakefield Poole about his 1971 debut film, Boys in the Sand. And we'll be talking to the writer and director of the the Cruise, a show opening at the L.A. Theater Center downtown, but it's set on a ship, not in a bar. <laughs> but first, the national and international news from This Way Out. I'm Carol Myers. And I'm John Dyer V. With Newswrap, a summary of some of the news in or affecting LGBT communities around the world for the week ending March 11, 2017. The organizers of Boston's annual St. Patrick's Day Parade, the South Boston Allied War Veterans Council, gave an LGBT veterans group the OK to march in the parade in a Twitter message late in the evening of March 10th. That followed a firestorm after Outvets was denied entry earlier in the week because of its rainbow banners. Several political leaders, including Mayor Marty Walsh and Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker, had vowed not to participate if the LGBT group couldn't. A statement by the organizing South Boston Allied War Veterans Council, which is made up of representatives from several South Boston American Legion and Veterans of Foreign Wars posts, first insisted that the council is accepting of all people and organizations, but it will not permit messages that conflict with the overall theme of the parade. It wasn't clear if the subsequent March 10th invitation to outfits to participate included being allowed to march under their rainbow banners. According to the Boston Globe, the council later clarified that the outfit's invitation was unconditional, and the group then announced that it would indeed proudly march in the March 19th parade. Outvets was first allowed to participate in Boston's St. Patrick's Day Parade in 2015 in what was seen as a landmark decision after parade organizers had, for decades, resisted the inclusion of self-identified LGBT groups. The U.S. Supreme Court in 1995 upheld the council's right to ban out LGBT groups on free speech grounds. Outvets marched peacefully under rainbow banners in 2015 and 2016 without incident. The group's executive director, Brian Bishop, said his first reaction to this year's rainbow banner ban was, You gotta be kidding me. This is not a political issue. Bishop said of marching in the nation's second-largest St. Patrick's Day parade behind New York's, calling it an issue of discrimination against those who served. 
New York St. Patrick's Day parade organizers allowed a few self-identified LGBT groups to march there for the first time last year. Elsewhere, a tribunal for minors in Florence this week recognized the British and U.S. adoptions by two different same-gender couples as legal in Italy. Among other benefits, the decision allows the Italian citizenship of the parents to be passed on to their children. The court wrote that if parental recognition were to be denied, this would result in a legal uncertainty that would negatively affect the children's development of personal identity. Nikki Vendola, a gay politician who had a child with his partner via a surrogate in the United States, told reporters that, It's another step forward for the recognition of the rights of rainbow families. Two fathers and two adopted children are a family, he said. Period. Surrogacy is illegal in Italy. The country's high court last year made it easier for gay men and lesbians to adopt a partner's biological child. Observers believe that decision set the stage for a court in the Italian city of Trento to recently allow two gay dads to both be listed as the parents of twin boys born to a surrogate in Canada. Roman Catholic Italy lags behind most of Europe in its recognition of lesbian and gay couples. After years of pressure, lawmakers finally created less-than-equal civil partnerships for same-gender couples late last year. The legislation passed only after adoption rights were specifically denied. That forces gay and lesbian couples who want to be joint parents to non-biological children to plead their cases on a court-by-court basis. Trump Education Secretary Betsy DeVos has supported so-called conversion therapy to make LGBT people straight, opposed marriage equality in her home state of Michigan, and never met a public school she liked but she continues to occasionally surprise equality advocates. The acts that surprise may be nothing more than symbolic, however. She reportedly objected to the new administration's dumping of Obama-era guidelines to ensure the equal treatment of transgender students in public schools, but was overruled by Attorney General Jeff Sessions and others in the Trump cabinet. And this week, DeVos met with a small group of transgender children and their parents, who pressed her to make good on her promise during confirmation hearings to protect all students. Five-year-old trans girl Ellie Ford and her dad were among those talking to DeVos at the closed-door meeting, as was high school student Grace Dolan-Sandrino. Grace's mother, Karen Dolan, told reporters that the education secretary listened to our stories through our tears and at times she seemed to appear visibly moved, but she didn't react. DeVos issued a statement after the meeting saying that she was grateful for the opportunity and that every school and every school leader has a moral responsibility to protect all students and ensure every child is respected and can learn in an accepting environment. I remain committed to advocating for and fighting on behalf of all students. Grace's mom, Karen Dolan, however, remains skeptical. There is one thing between increasing your understanding and having your heart moved for an hour and then out of her position of power, either acting to protect transgender and gender nonconforming children or acting in a way that will make their lives worse, she said. I haven't seen any concrete action that would give me any reason to be hopeful. In other school-related news, lawmakers in Utah have repealed the law that banned classroom advocacy of homosexuality, a law that failed to provide specifics of what constituted advocacy. That led teachers to avoid directly confronting anti-queer bullying, for example, fearing such an action would violate that law. The statute was challenged in court by Equality Utah and the National Center for Lesbian Rights on behalf of several students and their parents. 
Progress in the case was delayed to give the legislature a chance to pass a repeal bill. If Republican Governor Gary Herbert signs it, the lawsuit could be vacated. Equality Utah Executive Director Troy Williams called it a historic day for LGBTQ students. The removal of discriminatory language from school curriculum, he said, will send a positive message that all students are valued in Utah. Activists hope that this week's legislative action will pressure lawmakers in Alabama, Arizona, Louisiana, Mississippi, Oklahoma, South Carolina, and Texas to consider repealing similar no-promo-homo laws in their states. And finally, in more disquieting news, stepped-up vandalism and attacks on LGBT centers have paralleled similar increases in anti-Semitic acts across the U.S. since the election of Donald Trump, who ran a campaign based on animosity toward minority groups. Bomb threats have forced the evacuations of Jewish schools and community centers in more than a dozen states, and hundreds of tombstones were vandalized and overturned at Jewish cemeteries in Philadelphia and St. Louis. Obscene anti-queer graffiti was recently spray-painted across an entire wall of the Los Angeles LGBT Center. Vandals smashed a window at the office of Equality Florida in Orlando, a city now sadly associated with last year's massacre at the LGBT Pulse nightclub. Thugs have hit the LGBT Diverse and Resilient Center in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, three times in two months. Several windows were smashed at the headquarters in Asbury Park of New Jersey's LGBT Garden State Equality, and more than a dozen shots were fired from a pellet gun into the offices of the Equality Center in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Fortunately, no one was in the building at the time. The Tulsa World newspaper reported that this was the first time the Equality Center had been the target of vandalism in the 12 years since the LGBT rights group Oklahomans for Equality moved into the building. When asked for a comment by the Washington Blade newspaper about the escalating anti-LGBT attacks, a White House spokesperson, Kelly Love, said that President Trump condemns hate and evil in all of its very ugly forms, including attacks against the LGBT community. Believe me. 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 Believe me, folks. Believe me. Believe me. Believe me. Believe me. Believe me. That's News Wrap for the week ending March 11th, 2017. Produced by Steve Pride, written by Greg Gordon, and recorded at the studios of KPFK Los Angeles. Follow the news in your area and around the world. An informed community is a strong community. News Wrap from This Way Out is brought to you by you. Help keep us on the air and in your ears at thiswayout.org, where you can also read the text of this newscast. For This Way Out, I'm John Dyer V. And I'm Carol Myers. Remember, you can hear all 30 commercial-free minutes of This Way Out on the podcast at thiswayout.org and on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. And what becomes a legend most? An interview with our own Miss Barbecue. I'm Miss Barbecue with the incomparable pianist, recording artist, writer and producer on Transparent, Our Lady J. I've always liked to start with the basics. Where were you born, family-wise and stuff? I come from Pennsylvania. I am a hillbilly. I was raised in an Amish village of 200 people. Half the town was Amish, the other half were cows and rednecks. And I left that community because I didn't feel safe. I didn't feel understood. I sought asylum 
in metropolitan areas. I lived in New York for 10 years. I also lived in Dallas for a minute, Oklahoma City, Michigan for a minute, but most of my life I've spent in big cities. I've kept my family at a distance. I still speak to them occasionally to check in, but I came out when I was 17 as queer Mm -hmm. and then at 26 as trans, uh, 27 rather, and I am 38 now. Honey, no lines. (laughs) (laughs) So I've been out longer than I was in the closet. You're a trained pianist. Uh, Yeah, I'm a classical pianist. Classical pianist? Whoa. Um, How did you train as a pianist? We got everything at auction. People would die and they would auction it off for really cheap. That's how we got everything. We were really poor. And so my parents, when I was four, got a piano at an auction for $100, right? So they found a piano teacher that would teach me piano lessons for $4 a lesson. So first of all, they're very economic. (laughs) (laughs) But they wanted for you. Well, I wouldn't stop banging on it was the thing. (laughs) That's the way the story goes. I wouldn't stop banging on it. And they're like, we better get this child some lessons so that at least it'll sound good. You know, (laughs) music was a big part of our lives, though. We were very religious and music was a part of the church. My great-grandparents' generation, my great-grandfather was Mennonite. And then I had great-great-grandparents and great-great-great-grandparents. Can, can, can you explain what were. a Mennonite is? Mennonite is, okay, so you know Amish, right? Everybody mm-hmm. knows Amish. It's very similar. Old-order Mennonites, they were. Old-order Mennonites came first. And then the Amish broke off of the old-order Mennonites mm. because the Amish wanted to be more conservative. So old-order Mennonites are a little less conservative than Amish people. Some of them still drive horse and buggies, but they can use electricity, for example, that's not run by a generator, which Amish people, they only use generators. They cannot be connected to the outside world in any way, whereas the Mennonites are a little more integrated into the outside world. A lot of Mennonites in my town had cars, but the cars all have to be black or navy blue, and all the chrome on the cars have to be painted matte black or matte navy blue. And that's because you can't have shiny things to distract you from God, right? Hmm. Can you imagine <laughs> when I saw my first rhinestone, honey? I was, I'm like, you was doing crazy I was a full-grown adult. who was very excited. <laughs> I'm digressing. It's okay. So even the Mennonites, music was very important. And then they broke off and became evangelical Christians. So now my whole family, they're evangelical Christians. And music is a huge part of evangelism. So I grew up with music in the church. Did you play in the church? I did. First of all, I started off in the children's church when I was like eight or something. I remember my first public performance accompanying someone was I accompanied my father when I was nine. It was How Great Thou Art, Honey. And so music was just a part of life, and it was how I found acceptance, because I was a little queer, faggy, whatever I was, but when I got up there on stage, and when I played the piano, and when I dazzled them with my talent and abilities, all that chatter stopped. Did you hide behind that? I don't know if it was hiding as much as it was putting my energy into it. Mm-hmm. You know, I took all my energy and put it into it. And so what happened is I got freakishly good at it. And we found a piano teacher who would come up from Baltimore, a two-hour drive, and he taught me. And sometimes when we couldn't afford it, he taught me for free. The other times I got a scholarship, and that's how he taught me. 
And he saw that I had this talent, and so he helped me apply to a boarding arts school in Michigan, and he helped me get a scholarship there. And that's what saved my life, and that's why I'm here today and not in that tiny little town. When I left and went to that conservatory, I would put Bible scriptures up on the wall, and I thought gay people were evil. I knew I was queer, but I learned that that was evil, and I had internalized that. So... I tried to uh, proselytize to people for my first semester away. And looking back on it, I was like, oh, my God, people really had patience with me. Yes, they did. (laughs) People had patience. (laughs) I must have been really charming. (laughs) I noticed in your music, you brought gospel with you. Mm, Yeah. Well, that all happened kind of by accident as well. You know, I just follow where the wind blows me, (laughs) to be honest. (laughs) I was doing really well. In New York, as a classical pianist, I was playing for American Ballet Theater, Mark Morris Dance Group, Alvin Ailey, all of these amazing dance institutions I was doing really well at. Then I transitioned. I started transitioning. The first thing I did was I gave myself permission to be beautiful, whatever that meant. When did you start transitioning? Well, I found out I was HIV positive in 2004, and that stopped the drinking. That, That sobered me up for a minute and put me into therapy. How did this happen? And through that, I realized that a lot of my sabotaging and a lot of my self-destruction came from the hatred of my transness. So I came out and I started transitioning 2005, 2006. But the first thing I did was I didn't even say I was trans. I just said, I just want to be beautiful. I'm, I'm tired of people telling me that I can't be feminine. They were shaming my femininity. And so I gave myself permission to be feminine and beautiful. The next thing you know, I was appearing female. And I was like, oh, I guess. That's I what guess. it looks like. That's what it looks yeah, like. I guess what it looks like. I'm trans. Yeah. So when I started transitioning, I would walk into rehearsal spaces. And this is in New York City. Liberal-minded people. And they were confused. This was before the trans tipping point. Yeah. You know, this is a long time ago. This is 11, 12 years ago. People didn't know what I was doing. They thought I was doing like a drag show at nine in the morning. I was like, honey, I'm not putting on a show at nine in the morning. This is how I express myself. And that's all they knew. And so I was getting a lot of stares. I was getting less work. This is the problem with intellectual liberalism is it is not as open-minded as it thinks it is. So I was judged and I started getting a lot less work. Out of that, I was doing a lot of reading and I was looking back at how do queer people survive in this society. And, you know, we had a a few examples of RuPaul. And in New York, there's Amanda Lepore. And so there was this downtown scene that was happening. And so I became part of that downtown scene. And I thought, well, the way I'll stay afloat is if I make myself into a character. So I took on a name, Our Lady J, because I knew that people couldn't handle me on an eye-to-eye level. So I would put myself on a stage And then maybe people could listen to me. Because if you separate yourself and you put a spotlight on it, then it becomes performance and it becomes art and it becomes safe for them. So I made my performance about gender and I made my art about gender and I made it safe for them to listen to me. That's how I supported myself. I wasn't able to support myself anymore by just walking into a studio and walking into a classical situation. So I thought, well, I'm not a singer. (laughs) I'm a pianist. How am I going to do that? How am I going to put myself on stage. I can't just play piano. People would be bored. So I learned how to sing. I took some lessons. It reminds me of Nina Simone big time. I love Nina Simone. The the story of how she trained this piano, but her survival, they told her you have to sing or you can't 
work here. Yeah, that so was one of my inspirations. I was yeah. like, well, I, I love she, her. She did it as well. Yeah. So I'll do that. And so I learned how to sing. And then I was like, well, I can't just sing gospel music. I don't know how to dance. I'll learn how to sing, but I'm not going to learn how to dance. I'm not going to make pop music. <laughs> like, what kind of music am I going to make? And I went back to my roots. And I love gospel music. And that's what we grew up singing in the evangelical church. It's just the message behind the gospel music. You know, you'll be in the middle of a song in church, and you'll be like, yes, getting my praise on, honey. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you'll hear, and let's pray for our homosexual brothers and sisters who are going to hell. And I was like, I'm like, wait, I was having a good time with this tune. What happened? So I decided that I would just take all the dogma out of it. I wouldn't mention God, but I would still have it be an uplifting experience because I think that's what gospel music it is. Beginning of the first verse, you're starting at a dark place that's not so happy. And by the end of the first chorus, you're already risen. And by the end of the song, after two key changes, honey, you're saved. Exactly. That's how I fell apart. We stand. We are the flood that lights the sun. We are the two becoming one. I don't know what I would do if I never made This is Miss Barbecue with Our Lady J. Hi. We Stand is one of my favorites. Oh, thank you. I listen to that over and over. Do you know who Imogene Hepp is? Ah. Yeah, she was a big inspiration for that. Yes, song. you can hear it. I was listening to it going, this is Imogene Hepp, Nina Simone, a little bit of Kate Bush. I'm already getting chills thinking about it. Bush but all those, Tori. Tori, all those stirred in there, some PJ Harvey in there, a little bit Thanks. of a little bit You're of Fiona. Just like going through my Fiona my Apple. Spotify right yeah, now. <laughs> Fiona Apple in there. But it's smart. It's very smart, and it's funny. People don't expect LGBT people to be smart. I've gotten that. You're well-spoken for a drag queen. You're well-spoken for a black person. You're well-spoken. Is that how you've always been? Or have you set a bar for yourself and always try to strive for that? Well, oh, God. I'm sure you can be silly and <laughs> and frivolous. No, and... I'm very silly and I fart and you know that <laughs> you <stuff>. do. <laughs> I mean, right now I'm, I'm a comedy writer, but a lot of people say that transparent's not a comedy. You know? Uh, <laughs> do you think the attention to the trans part has made people take it too serious? I think it's important that we find humor in everything. Right? That's just how we survive. It gets too dark if we take things too seriously. We laugh a lot in the writer's room. We laugh so much, actually. But at the end of the day, we never want to laugh at something that is serious. And right now, where we're at socially, we have to be careful at what we laugh at because a lot of that can do more damage if we're not careful. In the writer's room, we laugh. We're irreverent. We write things out that don't end up in the final draft. And then what ends up that you see on the final product is both compelling and is humorous and is sad and relevant to where we're at right now. It's the only show about trans issues that is focused around trans issues and a family who is responding to a trans person and interacting with a trans person. And the fact that it is a dramedy more than a comedy has more to do with where we're at right now than what our actual intention is for the show. Because we're just trying to reflect where we're at right now. 
There's a lot of people in the LGBT community, especially in the trans community, they don't want to be activists. They just don't. They want to get their breasts and get their jobs and go about their business. Uh-huh. And then there are others who are called, kind of seen as, okay, she's an activist. Mm-hmm. Where do you see yourself? I think I'm an activist by nature. I had to be an activist to survive. It's not because I found politics interesting. I find politics to be very boring, and I would rather not be an activist. I don't want to be an activist. I want to have a good life. I want to have a nice apartment. I want my dog to have the best dog food there is. You know? (laughs) Period. None of that's going to happen unless I'm an activist. Why Our Lady J? It's a queer name. Historically, as queer people, we take on these names. That comes from the Harlem Renaissance. And as a musician, I love the Harlem Renaissance. Also, there was a book called Our Lady of the Flowers that was written in the 40s in France by Jean Genet. And she wrote it from prison, and it was all about hustlers and thieves and drag queens and trans women. And I was obsessed with it. And they had these fantastical names. Davina was one of the names, funny enough, a character in Transparent. So I took on the name Our Lady. I wanted to be Our Lady of the something, but I didn't know what. And my birth name began with a J, and I wasn't sure what I wanted to change my name to when I transitioned, but I knew I wanted to begin with a J, so I chose the letter J. And J has a lot of other meanings as well. So I became Our Lady J. I used to go by Lady Barbecue. Amazing! (laughs) Well, you know, Lady is a big thing in our community. Yeah. I resented Lady Gaga for the longest time. (laughs) Let's just talk about that. But you worked with her. I I was her pianist at NYU. When she was Stephanie, and you, you just call out Lady Gaga's real name. Yeah, Stephanie yeah. Germanati. That's all over the internet. <laughs> so Steph, she's a cis girl, and I resented her for a long time of co-opting a lot of queer things, and she did, and, and she, she made her career out of that. Bless her heart. She's also put a lot back into the community, so I can't resent her too much. I saw that you also worked with one of my favorites. Sia. Yeah. How was it totally. working with Sia? How did you It was surreal. With her? Well, we became friends first and then we started working together. I became her go-to pianist for these gigs cuz she never toured. And so we would do these little charity gigs and I played piano for her there. And then she was getting ready to put out her A Thousand Forms of Fear album. And in doing that, she started doing bigger gigs. And so the last time I performed with her was at the Hollywood Bowl 2 years ago. And we did five songs. It was one of those like radio station nights with Taylor Swift and Ariana Grande and mm-hmm. all those kids. It was surreal. And then I got the job writing for Transparent three weeks later. And it was one of the worst things because I was like, do I tour with Sierra or do I write for Transparent? And Oh, the I, first world problem. I know. <laughs> I, I felt very lucky to have that problem. Thank you so much, Our Lady J, for joining us. Are you taking... I don't even know what that means. <laughs> lies a girl who swallowed her sharpest swords just to show you that she And that was our well-spoken Miss Barbecue, who knows the most fascinating people. You know, I want Miss Barbecue to have a salon, invite all her friends and me. Yeah. 
well, I mean, I hope I'm her friend. And I just want to sit here and listen to these people that she knows talk about their fascinating lives and experiences. I know. I'll just sit at the edge of the room and go, wow, gee. I mean, this was a the whole Mennonite thing. And the music mm -hmm. was beautiful. It was like there was a little bit of Queen going on there. And yeah, was... poor thing doesn't know that we're completely rearranging her social calendar. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, still to come, Steve Pride in conversation with iconic filmmaker Wakefield Poole. And we'll be talking to writer Jonathan Ceniceros. Applause on that pronunciation, please. And director Keith Cullins, who are both working on The Cruise, which is opening at the LA Theater Center downtown, and downtown is cool again. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Cruising the Castro, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. The Castro District in San Francisco is steeped in gay history, and for 16 years there was no better tour guide than Trevor Haley and her Cruise in the Castro walking tour. She started it up in 1989 after attending a lecture by the leader of the Chinatown walking tour. It was like a light bulb went off, Haley said. I knew right then that's what I wanted to do. With a love for people and a gift for storytelling, her enthusiastic tour included Harvey Milk's Camera Shop, the Castro Theater, and Twin Peaks, the first gay bar with windows. Crowds were riveted by her anecdotes, even tracing back to the Lavender Cowboys of the 1800s. In 2005, after leading an estimated 4,000 tours, Haley retired. She died in 2007 as another one of the Castro's legendary figures. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded in the studios at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia, and read by volunteers like me, Mary Gay Hutcherson. Hello, I'm Our Lady J, and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine on KPFK-FM, 90.7 Los Angeles, 98.7 Santa Barbara, 99.5 Ridgecrest, China Lake, 93.7 San Diego, or streaming online at kpfk.org. Welcome back. You're listening to IMRU Radio. I'm Abby Dees. And I'm Wenzel Jones. When it opened in December 1971 at a small New York movie house, Wakefield Poole's Boys in the Sand was just the first motion picture from a neophyte filmmaker. Yet, Rudolf Nureyev drove hundreds of miles to see it. And in a, inside a screening, you might have seen Angela Lansbury, Liza Minnelli, or Halston in the audience. Its visibility changed everything. So who was Wakefield Poole, and why haven't you heard of him? years after Stonewall, a Broadway choreographer shot a 16mm film on Fire Island. It featured hardcore gay sex scenes, yet played at a legitimate theater, garnered mainstream media coverage, and attracted a celebrity crowd. Was Boys in the Sand a dirty movie? Groundbreaking indie cinema, or one of the greatest moments of gay visibility ever? Well, that depends on who you ask. I'm Wakefield Poole. Let's start at the very beginning. I wanted more than anything to be a ballet dancer. And when I got into the ballet roots, I accomplished my goal and was disappointed in the results of being in the company. It was not what I expected it to be. Touring, doing one-night stands for 10 months, even though I loved being in the company. But it's that way almost with everything I did. I would go so far, and I wasn't unsuccessful in anything that I accomplished. 
Even if you'd never done Boys in the Sand or any of the films, you had a fascinating life just based on New York and the dance and Broadway. I was lucky enough when I started my Broadway career that I worked with the brilliant, brilliant geniuses in that venue. Richard Rogers, Noel Coward, Stephen Sondheim, Jerry Bach and Sheldon Harnick, Arthur Lawrence, Jerome Robbins. I worked with them in one show or another. I think I was the only child on my block who had the cast album of No Strings. Yeah. I directed the London Company of No Strings with Diane Carroll. I was very lucky to hit all these things. I went to Woodstock just by accident. I didn't know what it was going to be. So I bought four tickets to Woodstock and took my lover and two other friends and drove them up there. And we had a motel room in Monticello. And I packed a picnic lunch with wine and we left it in the car because said it's only a mile up the road. It turned out to be 10 miles away from the car. We never went back for the food. So like everybody else, we were scrounging for, you know, Coca-Colas. And we had our drugs with us, of course. I always seem to be in the right place at the right time, so I have no complaints about my life in that respect. Tell me about meeting your lover, Peter. I met Peter at the Baths. We had sex three times at the Baths, and then the last time I said, you know, I live right around the corner. Do you want to come home? I'll fix breakfast. He did, and he never left. He had his own apartment, and he ended up closing that up and moving in with me. And we were together seven years. All my relationships seemed to run anywhere from six to eight years. <laughs> Boys in the Sand was also born when you and Peter were in a bathhouse. I met somebody at the baths one night, and he met somebody. And then we went downstairs to the pool, and we all met there. And it was the night Bette Midler opened at the Continental Baths. And we're sitting out by the pool saying, who's that broad singing in there? You know, what's going on in there? And all these guys sitting in towels watching this girl perform. It's the first time they'd had a show there. And because we met that evening is the reason I made the movie. Uh, Tom and Michael invited Peter and I out to Fire Island to stay at their house for a weekend, and we never left. We stayed the whole season. And I had decided I wanted to experiment and see if I could make a pretty sex film. I wanted to do two people really making love, not just doing it to do a dirty movie. And that's what I did. I got my lover to do it. And so I had the film already. So I said, Peter, you know, let's get Dino, this guy who had been very friendly with us and wanted to do a threesome. I said, let's get Dino and see if he'll do it. And he did. And so we did the first segment of Boys in the Sand. And it turned out wonderfully. And uh, people saw it and said, gee, you know, it's so good. You ought to make a full-length feature out of it. So I went to my manager and I said, Marvin, I'm going to make the rest of it. And I said, since I made it all on my credit card anyway, and you paid for it, do you want to become my partner? And we'll split everything 50-50. And he did. And Marvin put his name on the movie, and I put my name on the movie, which was unheard of in that time. Not only that we were gay, but we made a porno movie. Marvin was a theatrical business manager and did taxes for some of the top people in the business. Joan Rivers and Eddie Valella, and he had hundreds of dancers and singers at Broadway that he did their taxes. So he was well-known, and uh, we decided we would do a movie, and we would do it like a real movie and treat it like a movie and give it the respect that it deserved because a movie is a movie. It takes the same effort to make a movie as a porno movie. It's the same process. So we did. We hired a press agent. We did press screenings. We did screenings in people's homes. Um, Robert L. Green did a bruncheon for us and invited all the top models in New York. 
And of course, they all talk. And they saw the movie, and they all chittered and chattered. And it was at Christmas time, and a lot of parties, and it just spread like wildfire. Did you hear what Wakefield Poole did? He made a movie. So that's what everyone was saying at all the Christmas parties. It was the talk. And it made it successful because the way we treated it and the way the film was, and it was respectful to the people who were performing in the film. And I told people, I will never put anything in a film that you would be embarrassed by. So I want you to do what you feel and pretend I'm not there. I wanted all the inconsistencies and the insecurities that we do when we have sex with someone that we don't know. And we feel around and we'll try this and see what the reception is and what the body language is to our exploration. And it's a play back and forth. And that's what's in the movie and that's what people get. And they say, it's so beautiful and it's so real. Well, it's so real because it was real. So... It wasn't just gay guys in trench coats that went to see no. it. This was a thing. Tell me about that audience. Well, because of my theater reputation, everybody in the theater and on Broadway knew who I was. I'd done eight Broadway shows, and I won the Gypsy Road one year, so that means that everybody knew who I was. That helped the crossover because a lot of girls, dancers, were curious, not only about seeing a gay film, but seeing what I had done with it. So that helped create, again, the atmosphere that I really had in mind when I did it, that you could go and sit in a movie theater and not have period interest, but your interest was to see the film. We even put the times in the New York Times of the showings, 12 o'clock, you know, 1.30, blah, blah. So to treat it like a real film and let people know when the film started so they wouldn't just come in in the middle because it is a trip from beginning to end, and it's a whole. Even though they're three separate segments like loops, they're all connected in some esoteric way in my head, but it works. That's what helped with the crossover and the fact that we were interviewed in straight magazines and Variety did a whole article on Marvin and I saying amateurs bring in Bonanza. We were number 48 in the top 50 grossing films in the United States the week we opened. That was unheard of. We were competing with XYZ with Elizabeth Taylor and a lot of big movies, and we were number 48 and stayed on the list for several weeks, like six or eight weeks. And, and your star really didn't hurt. He was very all-American. I remember I used to have, and maybe I still do somewhere, the 1972 After Dark magazine that Casey Donovan was on the cover of. Well, Bill Como was the editor of After Dark. And Bill Como I met the first week I was in New York on Central Park West, and we became good friends. So he was very supportive of the movie. And there again, it's a national magazine, not a gay magazine, but it was, you know. Um, but um, he was very supportive, and he knew Cal, Casey Donovan. So we got a lot of press from him. And because of that, then we got other publications, and then the gay press started, you know, really pushing it. And um, it was done right, and it happened the way we wanted it to happen. One of the things that might surprise listeners is the link between your films and a chorus line. Michael Bennett was with Marvin, my manager, who became my partner in the movies. Michael had done a lot of Broadway shows, but didn't have any money. You don't make money on a Broadway show until it pays back its investment. 
all Michael's shows were critically successful, but they never paid back the investment. Follies was a flop financially. Company flop financially. So Michael needed money to live on while he worked on a chorus line. So Marvin called me in San Francisco, and he said, I need some cash flow. So he said, you've got to make another movie for eight, the 8 millimeter company because so many people all over the United States wanted to see Boys in the Sand because we got such coverage. And we all could only play 10 cities in the United States. So we got the idea of putting it on 8 millimeter and selling the whole movie for $99. And so people in Podunk, Idaho, and people in Florida, people all over the United States, and even the world, could buy the movie and see it. John Gielgud came to our office and picked up his own personal copy so he could take it back to England. That was a great, great moneymaker for us. That made more money than the actual theater. So he said, we need to make another movie for the 8 millimeter because I need the cash flow. So I made Moving. And uh, right after I moved out to San Francisco, and Peter and I had broken up, and he said, I'll do one more movie for you, which he did in Moving. And... I made it, and it was so good that we decided to put a score to it and put it into theaters as well, and we did. But the reason I had to make that movie was I had to support Michael Bennett for a year while he was developing a chorus line. So Michael even made jokes about it when he did interviews and everything, so he was not ashamed of the fact that poor no money went into a chorus line. You also knew Harvey Milk. I knew Harvey in New York before he ever went to California. And when we moved out there, we stopped by Castro Camera, which Harvey had opened, to see Harvey and said, we're looking for an apartment. you have any ideas? He said, yeah, there's one right across the street. And we went over. I didn't know what the Castro was, believe it or not. And it was right on Castro Street, right up the hill from the Castro Theater, right in the heart of Gatum. And uh, we rented the apartment there, which I use in the movie, Moving. And um, Harvey even developed the stills from my movies. You couldn't give them to Kodak because you wouldn't get them back. So I took them to Harvey, and Harvey would develop them and give them back to me. So Harvey knew uh, he'd seen the movies and respected what I'd done and sort of looked at me as a gay pioneer as well. And, uh, in fact, the night that the Anita Bryant thing happened, and everyone met on the Castro. We were sitting in the back of one of the stores, all in this garden, and I was sitting next to Harvey, and he leaned over, and he said, this is a bad time, and we have to be careful, you and I, because we're out there. And then I realized it's true. We were the most well-known gay people in San Francisco. And he said, we have to be very careful. And I never forgot that, especially after he was shot. And I was so done in by it, I didn't leave my apartment for three days. I just sat there and mourned. Any life lessons you can share? What I always did in my life was live in the moment and take advantage of everything that's there that you can use to accomplish whatever you have in your head at that moment. This has been a conversation with Wakefield Poole. A documentary about Wake, I Always Said Yes, The Many Lives of Wakefield Pool, from writer-director-producer Jim Kuszynski, is available on both DVD and VOD. Find more info at IAlwaysSaidYes.com. This is Steve Pry. Thanks for listening. Here I am, all alone and all
And if memory serves, Boys in the Sand was where I first saw Casey Donovan, who was blonde and beachy and the antithesis of what you would think of when you think guys in porn films. Was this an important film for you? Uh, well, I, I was actually rather young when it came oh, out. I, I saw it later in life, but <laughs> I, I did fully appreciate it. But yeah, what a fascinating life this man has led. Yeah. He's been everywhere. He's been everywhere. Well, here, live in studio, we have the writer Jonathan Ceniceros. Hello, Jonathan. Hello. And the director, Heath Collins. Hello, Heath. Hello. And they're both on the cruise, which is being presented at the LA Theater Center downtown. Now, Abby and I just saw this, and we're going to try to piece together a description with the creators watching this. Because the director and the playwright wouldn't do this until (laughs) we try to do it. Exactly. So, would you like to go first, or shall I? So, there's a man and his son, and he's a lecturer on the cruise ship and they meet oh okay well I was going to go a completely different direction <laughs> and say it was a gentle comic drama on a, that takes place on a cruise ship that amazingly in a very gentle way deals with father-son relationships sexuality cultural identity passing assimilation and bloody colonial history and, and it's very funny Yeah, because the other couple they meet have voted their conscience, not their sanity, as I believe the way it was put. (laughs) And there's a... Or their sanity, not their... No. No, she voted her conscience. He voted his sanity. And and there's a mysterious German tour director. played the role of Julie if we're doing the love (laughs) With a surprisingly... uh, Okay. But yes. So, so how, how would you put it? <laughs> Danish yeah, yes. Greatest and... Pan European. No. <laughs> he is. He's got that mysterious, to that. malleable yeah. accent. He could be yes. from anywhere. So how would you put it? And, and how did we do? Very well. Very well. Um, certainly, it's a father-son comic drama. Certainly, it uh, traverses those themes that you mentioned. Um which um, I think uh, I just it's it's so close to me that uh, it's personal, but it's also uh, universal in scope. And um, yeah, I mean, I I think you nailed it. Okay. Thank you. So the I director. So what? So this is a. You know, we're not going to make you do this exercise either, unless you want to. <laughs> I don't know what exercise. The director is of describing what it is. <laughs> but it is no. a wonderful, wonderful play. What drew you to this play? Initially, it was a father and son thing, um, yeah. just because I I think that functions. What I mean, unfortunately, it, uh, I know there's a, certainly a very different relationship between a, a mother and a daughter. But as a here's an older version of what I'm supposed to, in some way, try to become, or some way like, oh, that's what. That's my model. So um, that relationship initially, and and if that's the person you're looking to isn't around, either physically or their own identity and the way that they've navigated the world is a mishmash of shape-shifting and trying to assimilate and trying to pass and trying to conform in different ways and and that you don't see that if you're your if you're a son and your father isn't around that much and when he is around you're seeing this different versions of him all the time like how do you define who you are and i think that bounces off of interesting larger themes like colonialism of like oh well how do you like how do you know what you are how do you fit if there's there's the history book version and then there's 
the passed down oral history version. Well, well I'm going to interrupt you just yeah. for a second, just to like put this in context. The whole play takes place on a cruise ship, mm-hmm. on in, a luxury on cruise. a luxury cruise, cruise ship in the Caribbean, mm-hmm. and the characters, the main characters, are all come from very, very different backgrounds and experiences and come together, but they are all somewhat adrift, so to speak. Right, and and, and it's sort of in the backdrop of this colonial history, this very ugly colonial history of that. And the cultural dislocation in seeing the play, and it's it's what uh, has illuminated for me, is the fact that you have um, these characters, really all of them, who are kind of performing. They're, they're, they're not quite play acting, but they're borrowing um, for their, like, what they consider is their strongest suit or, like, and not for self-aggrandizement, mm-hmm. but to simply survive, to fit in, to to survive, if you will. Well, and before we get too intellectual, I, I feel compelled to mention that the son is young, gay, cute, <laughs> and spends the second <laughs> act in his board shorts. Details. And topless. Okay. And topless. And topless. Details. Yeah. Details. So, so back to the <laughs> smart <laughs> stuff. Carry on, gentlemen. So now this is being done. You speak up, Mr. Kenneth Lopez. <laughs> yes, yes. We've objected They're all right delightful. <laughs> and, and his dad is played by Rick Salinas from Culture Clash, yes. for you Culture Clash fans out there. And Rick was the first person I approached uh, to do this. And oh, really? he was so generous to say, and I, I had just met him, you know, and through through uh, mutual friends, and I, and he said, send me the script, and we'll see, you know. And this was, wow, four years ago. This mm-hmm. is four years in the making. Wow. Yeah. One of the uh, one of the key mm. things in this is that the central character is yeah is a young gay man, and he is also the father and son are pochos. Right. You know, and there mm-hmm. is it's this is very much looking at those two identities coming mm-hmm. together. And what is I'm just curious, what does that word and what does that mean to you guys or that intersection of gay and sort of the pocho? Well, that's too. Uh, that's a, like a like a twofer right there. But I mean, like <laughs> and uh, you have pocho uh, just a is usually a derogative term. Right. But I oh, think uh, well, because they've got a exactly. comedy show here called the Pocho. Well, that's well, it's a reclaiming. Re- it's, oh, it's oh, a kind of reclaim, and it's also a kind of um, there's more pochos out there than you think. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? And Ooh, am I and, a pocho? And and, I, and it's it's just a function of time plus. You know, mm-hmm. just people, act, you know, assimilating mm-hmm. uh, into into the culture, um, and yet at the same time, it's still a point of contention because there's a kind of blithe, you know, acceptance of like, oh, I'm just going to be Americanized and da 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 da. And that's what that term refers to, right? Like an it's Americanized... a kind of dislo- uh, dislocated uh, individual who's not close to his or her roots, uh, Latino roots, especially Mexico. It doesn't speak the language or doesn't speak it very well and doesn't really care. Or they hide from not caring or all of the above. Right. So um, that's what it's supposed to mean. Yeah. But it's that's there's an elastic definition there somewhere. Well, now, Heath Collins doesn't strike me as a name with a lot of mm. Latin roots in it. <laughs> no, did you, did no. you find your inner you're the, pocho? You're, you're the do first this? person <laughs> to tell me that. Uh, <laughs> well, I wasn't just going to call you white boy. But. Yeah, it's fine. It's yeah. fine. It's pretty. If, if you could see in Claim the booth, it. it's I'm Casper the ghost. Um, no, I I think on a, on a very simple level, it's. Uh, Somebody that doesn't fit in, doesn't – whether that's growing up in Texas yeah. and being not a football player yeah. and not – like and being a theater weirdo and and 
having wildly, wildly conservative parents and being very, very progressive and like not having or, you know, moving around eight or 10 times through your childhood. There are ways into what that is on just human level. And then I have the luxury of I can hide from that because I'm white. And you look at Jonathan and already have like a certain assumption based on his skin tone. So I don't have to bear that aspect of it. But getting a layer under that and working on the play of like, well, what is it just not to fit in? What is it to fake it? What is it to right. to feel like I right. don't have capital or or or, right. or, col- or currency in a situation? Well, well, none of us got to the studio because we fit in too well. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so right. I'm curious, though, this is being done under the umbrella of the Latino Theater Company who's mm-hmm. running the space in there. Do Is this their, like, token gay project? Is this the first thing they've done under this? Uh, do they? I'm not sure I mean, How much dealings have you had with them? And... They have been amazing. They've been very supportive. Um, Jose Luis, Venezuela, uh, they just wanted to do it. We had a reading of it, and um, they liked it. Um, you know, they have their, their posted uh, mission statement outside the theater. It's basically welcome Immigrants welcome everyone. Mm-hmm. Welcome, uh, despite you know whatever walk of life and creed. Come oh. on, yeah, we we're hear looking it at is. we're looking we at their thing. <laughs> we embrace all races, all religions, all countries of origin, all sexual orientations, all gender identities, all immigrant statuses. This is Los Angeles Theater Center. This is your home. Okay, and I mean quick, that's pretty cool. Quick and dirty because. As always happens, we have no time. We have no time. Um, Who is your audience? Who's the audience you want for this? And what do you want them to walk away with? But in 20 words. (laughs) Santa Barbara to San Diego. (laughs) (laughs) Just a theater, a theater going public. And people who are new to theater who want to see a a compelling story. Well done. Great. And you did that. Thank you. So that is The Cruise. It's at the L.A. Theater Center. Uh, if you want more information, it's VLATC.org, and it runs Thursday through Sunday, opens March 16th, and runs through April 9th. Thank you so much, gentlemen, Thank for coming. You. And Thank I wish you. we had more time. I Always I wish we had more time when we have live guests. Well, that is it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's coordinating producer, Steve Pride, our director, Michelle Marie Gilkison, board op, Frederico Garcia, and Rainbow Minute producers, Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. Find us online at imruradio.org. And follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio, where the link to the latest show is posted every Tuesday afternoon. And when you go to listen, give us a like. We'll close with a song from an artist from earlier in the show. Here's Our Lady J performing Picture of a Man. Good Good night. night. You take a picture of a man. And you boost him up with false pretensions. You need him to boost your economy. You take this picture of a man And you tell him this is what he looks like So he will be your riding horse So he will find your watch And so when he's here among the dead
full mortality Maybe it keeps me alive with everything I want to be Maybe it keeps me from running, keeps me from living a life that you know I try to stay honest, every day I try to die Why? What do you protect?